Thank you, Jack. What a blessing to be with this congregation and to see Jack and Kathy and Elijah and Abigail again. And that is one of the, uh, the great joys and blessings of being a Christian are the, the relationships that we, we form in the here and now and the things that we get to do along the way as we prepare for heaven. And it is truly a blessing to to see people that are like Jack and Kathy that are working hard in ministry and congregations like you that are supporting them. So we thank God for you. What a wonderful period of singing. Uh, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. I, I know that as we think about faith this morning and think about it this next few days, that our faith certainly is rooted in and based upon the hearing of God's word, and that as we go through life, our faith can develop and it can grow because of the circumstances that we face. And as we see God at work in our lives, and as we encounter the circumstances that go along with the blessings of this life, we truly can come to know and appreciate God all the more. I love the word of God. I love God, and because I love the Word of God, I've come to love God even more. And hopefully this morning, as we think about God and we think about His place in your life, we also want to think about what He did over the ages to reveal to us an important message, a message that culminates in our joining Him throughout eternity in a beautiful place called heaven. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for you, to die for me. And this book declares that great message. And a part of that great message and God's design to communicate his love to you and his message of direction and of wisdom that he gives to you to enhance our desire to be with him speaks of a very important city known as, known as Jerusalem. In fact, there are approximately some 900 references to Jerusalem in both the Old and New Testaments. Now, either uh, Jerusalem itself or a pronoun relating to it but Jerusalem is indeed at the center of a message that God wants us to know about. Now, because of that, there are a lot of people today who recognize the central location and importance of this place. If you go to Jerusalem sitting on the top of where the Temple Mount is located, the, the, uh, the uh, um, Al-Asharif that is known as the Noble Sanctuary, there is this Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim mosque where in Muslim tradition, they say that Muhammad came and ascended from a rock uh, up into heaven to meet with uh, Allah and then came back down here. They call it the night's journey. So the Muslims uh, hold Jerusalem uh, as a very important place. And a part of that is because they believe in many of the Old Testament scriptures. Then, of course, we know 
that Jerusalem is important to Judaism, both to biblical Judaism and to uh, rabbinic Judaism that is in existence today. The most important shrine in Orthodox Judaism is the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall by foreigners because two times a year the Jews gather here and literally sit at the wall, at least more Orthodox Jews do, and they sing the song of lamentations and they mourn the destruction of the temple and what once stood there. And all you're seeing there today is a portion of what we'll talk about in a minute, this retaining wall that held up the temple complex that was utterly destroyed as Jesus had prophesied about in Matthew chapter 24. So Jerusalem is important to Jews. It's also important to Christians because it is in the city of Jerusalem that our Lord was crucified, that he was buried, and that on the third day he was resurrected again. So this important city holds for us important archaeological data, but also a geographical one that gives us a historical context for the most important event in all of history. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is based upon. Not only then is it important to these various religions in the world, but for us as Christians, it's important not simply as some alleged holy site, but also because of what the Bible teaches about Jerusalem. There are many references to Jerusalem in connection to heaven itself. And then this reference in Psalm 137 verses 5 through 6 with regard to a Jew who had been carried away into Babylonian captivity and was called upon to sing a song, but they missed their homeland so much that it was hard to sing. But yet the psalmist says, if I were to forget Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its cunning. If I do not remember Jerusalem above my chief joy, then let my tongue cleave to the roof of its mouth. In other words, don't let me be able to sing. Don't let me be able to direct uh, the chorus in some way of the Jewish singers who would sing a song about Jerusalem if somehow I were to forget it. Well, why did God in the book of Revelation use Jerusalem as this marvelous imagery for heaven? And why then did the psalmist here speak about it being his chief joy? I want to spend just a few moments this morning talking about Jerusalem. There are some facts and information that you might find rather academic or just a little bit boring. I hope not. Because what I'm going to share with you is going to form the basis of something I believe that's going to enhance your desire to be with God forever. The Bible uses it uses the city of Jerusalem to help you see something about what we can expect in the life hereafter. So as we think about Jerusalem this morning, 
I want you to think about, number one, its location. That God spoke about Jerusalem, and this psalmist appreciated Jerusalem because of where it was located. In a secure location in the hill country, uh, Israel, the land or the territory of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, can be divided up into many geographical zones, but the main ones that sort of go north to south is this Philistine coast area or this coastal area, the hill country region right here where Jerusalem is located, and then the Dead Sea and the Jordan River Valley and the Transjordan Plateau and then the, the Eastern Desert. But it is in the hill country, sort of off the main trade route that went along the coastal region and on up to the area of Mesopotamia that we spoke about this morning, that Jerusalem was located. You can see in this particular diagram that Jerusalem has these very interesting topographical features associated with it. The Dead Sea being the lowest place on earth, some 1,400 feet below sea level. And then you go up to Jerusalem around 2,600 feet above sea level. So in a small area, this land is quite diverse, but there was this important Jebusite city that David conquered and renamed it or called it Jerusalem, where God's people were located to give them some type of security. Not only security away from the international trade route and sort of off the beaten path, but also on a hill itself giving them some sort of defensive posture. If you know something about Jerusalem, maybe you've been there or have seen images associated with it, you would know that Jerusalem is surrounded by hills. It's on a hill itself, but also surrounded by hills. In this topographical map, you can see this finger-like structure sort of jutting out away from Mount Moriah and that on either side there are these series of valleys. Jerusalem, where the city of David first began and then expanded to the north and to the west, is actually lower in elevation than some of the hills around it. In fact, as this map is going to show, you can see and begin to know then that here is where the city of David, where David conquered it from the Jebusites, about 10 to 12 acres in size, eventually moved northward, but was bounded on the east by the Kidron Valley, on the west by the Central Valley, sometimes called the Tyropian Valley, and on the west by the Hinnom Valley. So literally surrounded by valleys and hills, even some to the northwest and to the northeast, the northeast, the so-called Bethesda Valley. And then right there on top of Mount Moriah was the temple where God had Solomon build a permanent structure for the meeting house of God's people where they could meet with him and worship him and offer sacrifices on the hills. We even sing a song sometimes associated with this particular concept. Uh, just as the hills surround Jerusalem, may God surround his people. So Jerusalem, a place of security, a place of defense, but also a place of provision. 
If you're going to establish a community in the hill country, you might want to be on a hill for defensive purposes, but you also have to have water. And Jerusalem provided both. On the eastern side, just down in the, near the base of the Kidron Valley, there is the well-known spring of Gihon. That spring here in this valley is accessed by today a set of stairs that lead down to a cave. And in this cave, there is what's known as a karstic spring, or some people call it a siphon spring, where the water underground comes from the area of Mount Scopus and the Mount of Olives and goes underground. And then there's a place where it is sort of brought up in a sort of bubbling-like fashion. Beautiful, fresh, clean water that you can see here that is still flowing today through Hezekiah's tunnel that we will speak about uh, later on tonight. This beautiful spring provided a constant source of water for the inhabitants. It was channeled by the Canaanites down to the southern end of the city, what came to be known as the city of David, where it was pooled. Hezekiah, many years later, built a tunnel under that mountain and channeled it into the central valley, forming a pool that was in the time of Jesus known as the Pool of Siloam. So, security and a water source. Here you can see, even before the time of David conquering the city, that the Jebusites had an underground tunnel that they built to allow themselves access to this tunnel underneath. And they, as you're going to see in a minute, built a tower, built a fortification over that spring. So there was a water source in ancient Jerusalem. But also, Jerusalem is really known as a place in the mind of Jews as a wonderful time in which God used that city to raise up kings, to give his people a place to gather, to worship. There's a lot of nostalgia associated with this particular city. Not only was the city the area where Abraham came to offer up his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, which uh, the Bible clearly places just north of the city of David in what today we call the Temple Mount area, or some call Mount Zion. It was there that Abraham was called upon in faith to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. It would be the city, of course, then where God would offer his son as a sacrifice for our sins, for yours and for mine. This city has a unique history associated with it and a very fascinating element of how David conquered it from the Jebusites. When Joshua took over the land, remember that people of Israel didn't drive out all the neighboring nations like they should have. And one of them was left in the central part known as the Jebusites that had what the Bible calls this city known as Jebus. Although many in even earlier years called it the city of Jerusalem, a, a city or a place of peace. And in Jerusalem, we find that David told his men, whoever gets up the gutter, or the Hebrew word sonor, and a lot of people debate, what is that gutter, that word sonor in Scripture mean? And, and how did Joab and his men infiltrate the city? Well, I mentioned a moment ago, this spring of Gihon had a large uh, 
fortress area built over there. Just within the last 10 years, archaeologists have discovered what is now underground, but this ancient uh, tower-like structure in a pool built to the side of it where the Canaanites had water channeled from the, screen, the spring of Gihon over into this pool, and then they had access underground to be able to come and gather water for this pool. Now notice that David and his men uh, somehow, at least Joab, accessed this pool. Some say that maybe because of the channel that was dug here to let water out to the uh, Valley of Gihon for, I mean, the Valley of Kidron for the local farmers and residents there, that that's how they crawled in this sort of water channel to get inside the city. Is that the way he did it? We don't know 100% for certain, but imagine how that story lived in the lore, in the wonderful collective memory of the Israelite people in thinking about this wonderful means by which they encountered and got inside these tunnel areas and then into their water source and into the city itself. The city has a grand history that began with, as I mentioned a moment ago, only about eight to 10 acres on this finger-like peninsula jutting out uh, into these valleys, a natural defensive area that began to expand northward where the temple was located and then eventually expanded up on the western hill that is today called Mount Zion. And by the time of Christ, took in some close to nearly 500 acres of land. So kings reigned here. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and the kings of the south. Wonderful and marvelous stories all were part of the history of Jerusalem during the time that the Bible was written. Expansion projects, large building stones that are still uh, standing today remind us of how important the people of the past felt or what they felt about this ancient city. During the time of Christ, some of the stones that remain even now that uh, included this widening of the mountain of Mount Moriah for Herod to build this grand temple still stand. And these wonderful buildings and the remains of them that have been found. Now here are gates leading into the city. This is actually a, a gate from uh, the period of the 16th century. The great Turkish leader, Suleiman the Great of the Ottoman Empire, conquered it. But in many instances, they built gates and walls over the top of previous walls and uh, foundation areas that were in existence. But these gates give you an idea, a little window into the past of what the gates look like during the time of Christ, entryways into these cities. Notice this one, the, the Damascus Gate on the northwestern side of the city that literally had a road that led out as what people would go to on their way to the city of Damascus, way up north. And you can remember Paul went out a gate similar to this one. Again, this was not that gate, but there is a foundation underneath that uh, takes us back to uh, the first century AD and the period of the Romans. I just want you to think about the walls the gates, the grandeur, the magnificence of this place. Some of the stones 
in this city that was in existence during the time of Christ weigh 600 tons. Most of them weigh about 60 tons, but there is one in the lower foundations that is every bit as wide as this building or this auditorium. Some calculate that it's at least 15 feet wide in depth, and it's about four feet high, weighing around 600 tons. Those stones were quarried out of the Judean hill country in the limestone rock that is abundant, hundreds of feet thick, deep uh, in those mountain areas, made with a beautiful edge around them and this flat boss and a frame that was put around them by Herod's artisans. It's a beautiful place. And even today, we just stand in awe of how grand that city is and was. But Jerusalem was not only important because of its secure location, because of its defense, because of the water there, because of its history, but also because of the fellowship that took place there. I mentioned this temple that was built by Solomon that was destroyed by the Babylonians and then rebuilt in this fashion here by King Herod the Great starting in around 23 B.C., a huge complex that dominated the city of Jerusalem. You're seeing it there in the distance. Some 26 NFL-sized football fields could be placed upon the platform of that location there today. Now, this grand complex that Herod built was truly one of the great wonders of the world. And it was a place where Jews would come uh, at various times throughout the year, but especially at their feast days like Pentecost and Passover. And then other feast days that developed like Purim and Hanukkah or Purim and uh, these, this festival of lights. When we think about those great days, you can see a little remnant of it today as you visit the Western Wall in Jerusalem. You go there and there are modern day Jews gathering and they're singing and they are offering up their praise to God. And it gives you just a little bit of a, maybe a feel of the excitement that Jews during the time of Christ and before would have had as they came to this grand complex to offer their sacrifices and to be in the presence of God and to hear the singing that went on at the temple and the, the aroma of the sacrifices and the incense being burned. When, when you walk in the streets of Jerusalem today, you, you even get a feel for that unique sort of aroma of the spices and, and incense that's even burned uh, in some of the shops and certainly of the various um, places, uh, food-eating establishments, and they're serving their food. Oh, how the aroma must have permeated that city. And the sounds and the excitement of getting to know that you were, or knowing that you were getting to be there at the presence of Almighty God. Today, all that remains of that Herodian complex is a retaining wall. Here's a portion of that retaining wall. In other words, the, the mountain on which Herod wanted to build his temple was so 
It was not quite big enough, so he expanded the base of it by going out into the Central Valley and building a retaining wall around the western side, the south, and extended it on the east. It was on top of that that the temple was built. In fact, this retaining wall that you're seeing here in the Western Wall Plaza is only about one-third visible to us today. Two-thirds of it are underground that during the time of Christ would have been completely ex been exposed to the open air, but over 2,000 years of history have filled in that valley, and just a little bit of that wall remains. So, as you think about that Western Wall, here it is on this model located right where the red arrow is. Just a small portion of what remained of a once marvelous, huge, ornately decorated in Roman Greek style of, of uh, architecture and art in terms of the columns. If you were to have visited the temple during the time of Christ, on the southwestern quarter, there was a, a beautiful grand staircase that the historian Josephus tells us about, and also archaeologists have found portions of the base of this particular staircase and a part of it also that's jutting out away from the southwestern wall today known as Robinson's Arch. And this grand staircase leading you up into the royal stoa and up, and you can see the royal stoa at the top of the picture. Columns were so big, so large, that Josephus said that if three men tried to get around one and touch fingers, they could barely do it. Remember, 26 NFL-sized football fields could have been placed on top of there. You're looking also in this picture of the, the court of the women where there was in the corners located in this area where women could come and where everybody was welcome and the women could go to this place and, and offer prayer as they would or like the, the widow woman who threw in, cast in her two mites into the temple into the temple collection box. There was a corner of this place for lepers, a corner uh, special room, and for those who were working on the Nazarite vow, and a place also in the corner where the oil uh, was kept to produce uh, pouring oil and the huge menorah and the, and the oil lamps that were located within the place. Steps that led in then to the court of Israel and on into the holy place and the holy of holies. This was a magnificent, marvelous, beautiful place. Remember the disciples of Jesus, his apostles? During the last week of the Lord's life, they're there and they are showing Jesus the buildings, the furnishings of the temple. And they were impressed. Oh, this grand temple where there was so much celebration so much fellowship, so much joy. But Jerusalem, I think for all of us this morning, having had that background, we need to remember it as a bit of motivation to think about the place that we're going and the joy that we will experience with God. place where there will be a new Jerusalem. When you think about the book of Revelation and a reference to the new Jerusalem, you need to remember the, the context behind the writing of that book. 
God's people were being persecuted. And in the book, there are references to this persecution in the form of numbers. A reminder that this persecution is but for a while. But for a while. It's not a full, complete persecution in the number of seven, but in the number of three and a half, represented by days and months and years. It's coming, John says. Some of you are already experiencing it. Some of you will be bound and cast into prison. Ten days you shall suffer tribulation. But whoever is faithful, he shall receive the crown of life. And as John looks down the stream of time to see more and more of that destruction or that persecution coming, he is also allowed to see from heaven's perspective what's going to happen to people who persecute the saints of God. And not only that, John is allowed to see what's going to happen in the end. While though, yes, Satan and his emissaries will be destroyed and this earth will be destroyed, He says, one day there's coming the new heavens and the new earth. And as John looked and saw those new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21 says that I saw coming down out of heaven a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem had lived in the minds of not only the Jewish people, but the early Christians who saw it as a significant site and place Where God's presence was. That's where the church was begun. Acts chapter 2. That's where Peter preached in Acts chapter 3. The church gathered at the temple early on. For many of its meeting places. It's where Paul would go later on. To finish one of his vows. As a ethnic or national Jew. In his civil law of committing a promise that he had made. Where he himself was arrested. Jerusalem was very important to Christians in the first century. And so for God to tell people then and to tell all of us that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt in a sense. What do you mean, God? As we look forward to heaven, this new city? Oh, let me tell you, that old Jerusalem, it pales in Comparison. This new wonderful city, the city of my God, spoken of by Jesus in Revelation 3, verse 12, is awesome. John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. In other words, she's beautiful. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any more death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. It's coming a a beautiful place called heaven. I can't wait to go there. I can't wait to be a part of that celestial city.
And so, what is it like? Well, if I knew something about the old Jerusalem, that I could better appreciate heaven itself and the new Jerusalem. And so as we think about the new Jerusalem, what does the writer go on to say about it? Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, we've already said, was only 425 acres, about 0.7 square miles. Now, Jews thought again how beautiful and how great and marvelous it was. But God says, I'm going to tell you about another place. An awesome place. In fact, this new Jerusalem, look at this, is going to dwarf that Jerusalem. This one right here, again, 425 acres, the new Jerusalem, 12,000 stadia, or roughly equivalent to 1,400 miles square. What was, the, what was the old Jerusalem? 0.7. God says the new Jerusalem, 1,400 miles like a cube. 1,400 miles that way, 1,400 miles that way, 1,400 miles that way, 1,400 miles high. Well, if you could put that new Jerusalem on the map today of the world, it would completely cover over Saudi Arabia, Israel, Jordan, and up in the Mesopotamia. Just the city. And it would engulf, if you could place it over India, completely engulf India. God says, look, this marvelous place that you're going to, I want you to get excited about it. Okay? You're not just going to be floating around as some sort of bodiless people in the clouds. There is heaven that's going to be wonderful. Now, the literal aspect of it and the you know, metaphorical, people debate and they talk about that. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is that God has described it in beautiful terms that entices me. It says, you ain't seen nothing yet. I love going to the old city of Jerusalem today. There's something about it grandeur of it, the greatness, and I, I marvel at those stones, you know, I mentioned one of them, 600 tons. Beautiful, beautifully carved. Look at it, there's how high it is. But in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, instead of these gates made out of limestone rock, Remember what the Bible says? Gates of pearl. The pearly gates. And instead of streets made out of the limestone rock like they had in the first century, streets of what? Gold. Pure gold. And instead of the waters of the Gihon Spring, A pure river, crystal clear, flowing from the throne of life. Not just a small spring, but a river. Pure and beautiful. And you go to Jerusalem and every day, guess what? The sun sets. There's night there. But in heaven, 
no night. One eternal blissful day. And folks, here's the best thing of all. You go to Jerusalem today, and there are ancient tombs scattered around the Kidron Valley, over in the Hinnom Valley. There is the alleged tomb of Jesus where the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is located and where other ancient tombs have been found from that period. Tombs all over and around the city. But guess, won't, guess what will not be in God's eternal city? No more tombs. No more graveyards. No more crying. No more decay. You know, I don't, I, I grew up in the church hearing a lot of sermons about heaven and hearing a lot of sermons about being ready and that, you know, we're going to die. And I went to a lot of funerals. 2020 was a really difficult time for me. And it wasn't just simply because of the pandemic. I lost both my mom and my dad and my greatest mentor as a gospel preacher, all within the space of nine months. And in November of that same year, while sitting in a church building in a class, just like you are this morning, my heart stopped. And for over an hour, people worked on me to save my life ministering CPR, broke my sternum and several ribs in my chest. And I lay in a hospital for two weeks in ICU. Most people don't survive a cardiac event. Only 7% of people who have one outside of a hospital survive. You don't think death is real to me? I'm tired of it. Been to too many funerals. And then when I've preached the funerals and of loved ones, and I've seen the hurt. And I've seen what happens to older people as their body becomes so feeble. And they suffer maladies and things begin to, you know, break down. And I've seen the hurt that goes on in this fallen world. And I read about a place where there is no more death. There is no more crying. Just one eternal, blissful, wonderful, marvelous day in a great setting. And above all, not just the setting, but to be with God. No one has ever seen the face of God and lived but we'll see his face, the book of Revelation tells us. And there won't be any temple in this new city because the Bible says we'll be tabernacled by God. There will be an indescribable, and I can't understand it all completely, but this sort of completely envelopment of love. God is love. And I will be tabernacled by him. 
and all of the hatred and all of the ill will and all of the times of, of my feeling inadequate and all the times of my feeling as though maybe someone didn't like me and all of those insufficiencies will be gone. Eternally. And happy. And at peace. I'm kind of homesick. For a country that I've never been to before. Are you ready? Don't miss out on heaven. It's going to be grand. And when we, by faith in Jesus Christ, are immersed for the remission of our sins, God puts us in his family. And as we walk in faith, as Revelation 3 verse 12 says, and we do not allow the things of this life to overcome us, then we can be a pillar in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. That's what Jesus said. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, do it this morning. If you need to have your faith renewed, do it right now as together we stand and as we sing.